I'm Shannon Theobald, and this is Big Food, Big Future, where we teach you how to make a positive impact in the food system to leverage influence for good. Thanks for coming. I am so glad you're here to chat today. today's episode, we're finding answers to the changing rules in Southeast Asia. What does the food scene look like and where is it going? There's some excitement ahead. Let's talk with Emil Fazira. She's the food and nutrition consultant at Euromonitor International, and she's a global expert in the meals category. Emil is Singapore-based and has a super unique perspective on Southeast Asian food markets. She has a microbiology background, and I actually noticed her on Twitter just for her great content. Go follow her, at Emil Fazira. Anyway, here she is. All right. Hello. Thank you so much for joining me. Would you like to introduce yourself to the audience? Um, hello. My name is uh, Emil. Uh, Emil Fazira. You can call me Emil. Um, I'm currently a consultant uh, in food and nutrition research with Euromonitor International. Um, I pretty much am quite obsessed about, you know, food and uh, what's going on in food, especially in meals uh, and the whole environment surrounding um, cooking, uh, grocery trends, uh, how, how people are eating, um, and how this translates to uh, innovation and uh, sustainability and um, how food can uh, evolve in the future. So um, that's a bit about me. Amazing. Very exciting. Yes, and we're so happy to hear your expertise. So uh, I guess we'd love to hear a bit about how you got where you are today. You know, what did you think about food growing up? And did you always think that you would go into food? Um, I guess, um, uh, you know, from being from Singapore, um, food has always been kind of uh, practically a luxury uh, for me. Um, there's there's hmm. so much choices. Um, you know, coming from a, a multicultural country where there's uh, all kinds of food from fast food to um, high-end food and even to um, what we call hawker centers here where there are simple a few dollars worth of uh, noodles and rice and uh, breads. Um, there's always a lot of choices. So I guess I kind of took it for granted growing up, I have to say. Um, hmm. uh, I think... Um, a good memory of food, uh, you know, when I was growing up is really um, the food that I had at home because that would be mm -hmm. a very different um, taste of food. Like no matter how many choices you get from outside at the end of the day, you know, you, you really miss what your mom cooks or, you know, the, the normal soup yeah. that you get at home or the standard kind of like rice and egg and fish that you always have at home. So I think um, that's about food that, you know, you know, really um, um, brings uh, brings my memory uh, to food um, growing up, and I think that's really the special thing about food and how um, I think how people perceive it. At the end of the day, it's like uh, you know, food is something special for everyone. It's it's you know, you we, each of us have our own comfort food, right? <laughs> 
So mm-hmm. yeah, even when you're sick, you want a specific type of food. It's it's a it's a bit different from any other thing that you would buy or that you'd own. Food is something that is personal and it's a very closely tied to culture. Um, I actually didn't really uh, enter the food industry right away. My background is more on the bio side, and uh, I also had a um, academically trained in uh, engineering side. Um, I also mm-hmm. um, you know had some working experience in. Um, the lab or the quality assurance side of food, uh, food production. So it was more like a the technical side before I really went into the, uh, research side of food. Gotcha. Interesting. All right. I love what you said about, you know, we all have our comfort food, and I think that's really the thing about food is anyone can get excited about it because it relates to literally everyone's life. I love it. Now, you said you have uh, quite a technical background, it sounds like. That's amazing. I'm curious, you know, how do you use that in your work now? Um, at first, uh, you know, it was more tied to uh, understanding how the food was produced, um, how quality is being assured, um, especially since um, I was more uh, to the baby food side. So, you know, in baby mm-hmm. food, uh, all those checks are really important. Um, but then I guess um, in my current work, I focus more on the end consumer side about, you know, what consumers look for in terms of the packaging and so on or um, the ingredients. So um, it's a better understanding of how, you know, the back end should also kind of like uh, uh, synchronize with what consumers want. Um, hmm. so, um, I think having that slight bit of, bit of background kind of helps in, um, having a, a, I would say a more holistic view rather than just a business perspective. Um, but I would say, of course, that, um, you know, as I, you know, advanced my career, I didn't really focus much on the technical side, but, um, having that background knowledge, um, kind of helps. Definitely. Yeah. I mean. Even in my own career, I found that I've had to kind of learn a lot of the technical knowledge on the job. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure that coming into it with that would just, you know, already put you at an advantage. So that's very cool. Okay, interesting. And, you know, you mentioned that uh, it's important to kind of align the back end with the front end. So with what consumers get. Have you found any best practices in doing so and you know how did you discover them um i think uh you know so far i haven't had the you know the 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 luck or the opportunity to really get a best practice in that but i think um what comes up most in one of the latest trends would be um something that uh that that producers or food manufacturers would really have to think about before um you know launching new products or going to the market um, I think the scalability is a big issue that has come up very recently a lot. I think mainly because of all the plant-based foods, um, how uh, companies are more and more using technology uh, and digital tools to help in their business. But you know, all these cannot be realized if um, they can't achieve scale or they can't balance um, the cost and you know to produce something on a commercial size um, that would be still profitable and at the same time, personal or customized for their con- for their consumers, because I think, um, you know, consumers are increasingly wanting products that are more uh custom, 
more personalized to their preferences, uh, make them feel special, unique, things like that. Even packaging is becoming more um, personalized. But, you know, not all companies have the ability or capabilities to uh, achieve this. Um, so there needs to be a balance uh, in terms of the scale and the uh, productivity side uh, to balance with what consumers want. So I think that is, you know, one of the biggest concerns um, that has come up, um, you know, in my conversations recently, um, especially since um, there's a lot of talk on, um, you know, uh, excitement on the plant-based uh, food side. Definitely. Yeah. Hmm. And how does that play in the meals category, which I know you're super focused on? Um, I think actually it kind of like puts um, meals at a very uh, uh, interesting position because um, I think one, uh, you know, one maybe category that uh, uh, food producers want to try to um, gain access to would be the meal side because that would be something that is more um, tied to everyday consumption compared to snacks or even uh, nutrition type mm -hmm. of products, which would probably appeal more to consumers who have a specific type of income level or, you know, some sort of a, a, a luxury to spend on. Whereas, you know, everyone needs their core meals or their basic um, staple food uh, and their basic um, ingredients and stuff like that, that that they have every every day. So people might not snack every day or they might not have something uh, healthy every day, but, you know, they would usually go for their typical meals uh, every day. So I think um, mm -hmm. that is one big um, area that, you know, um, players are trying to tap on. So that's where you see all those, um, you know, for example, if you're talking about plant-based, you see all those um, plant-based um, patties. Uh, and then we also have, uh, you know, they're trying to overlap with uh, uh, food service as well. I think recently, um, just this week maybe, um, you know, the impossible um, the Impossible mm -hmm. Burger, you know, they, yeah. they, they have a tie-in with Burger King uh, in the US. So that is some is that is a way that, you know, they are trying to, you know, gain more visibility with uh, consumers and it's really interesting on the meals front. Uh, not just that, you know, the type of meals that consumers are getting at home, but also, you know, in how they access outside of the home. Definitely. Yeah, and it's so important for us as food professionals to think about every way that consumers are kind of having that touch point with food. So yeah. I find that so exciting. Yeah, the lines are all like blurring now, you know, there's there's no um you know, yeah. like one or two or three channels anymore. You know, people get food from, you know, all sorts of uh um they gain access to, to food and, and learn about them in, in all different ways and it's all overlapping. Doesn't Emil just have such great insights? What I'm hearing here is that personalization is a requirement. That meals are hot because, well, we have to eat them. And that the rules are changing. Where people get their food from and when they consume it is not the same as it was even 10 years ago. And that right there is what gives us a bright spot of opportunity. I want to pause for a sec to tell you about something cool. Now, when I first started, I had absolutely zero idea how to edit a podcast. But luckily, I found Alitu. That's A-L-I-T-U. It's pretty much the copy-paste of podcasting. You upload your clips, click and drag to arrange them how you want or cut them, and then Alitu edits your audio for you so it sounds amazing. If you want to learn more, 
go over to my website, shannontheobald.com slash capital A-L-I-T-U. And let me know if you have any questions at all. Seriously, I genuinely recommend this and will continue using it. I love it. And I hope to be listening to your podcast sometime super soon too. Okay, back to the show. You might not think one of the biggest food producers in the world would embrace this chain. If you didn't, you're in good company. Actually, they really are taking note. Here's an example for you. Jeff Harmoning is CEO of General Mills. And he gave some really great insights at a speech at Carlson School of Management. I think as we look over the next five years, the thing that's going to change more than anything else is how food is delivered. And, and the use of technology in doing that. And, and um, we have a strong e-commerce presence um, with, uh, with grocers around the, around the country and around the world. The leading market really for food and e-commerce is, is Korea, with, uh, with China not too far behind. And the U.S. actually lags. We, you know, we, we're used to being the first of things in food and, and, and e-commerce. We're actually one of the of developed markets. We're one of the slowest. So um, there's a lot changing. And, and for us, it's a matter of, you know, it's a matter of making sure we keep up with that change. And whether it's buying natural and organic companies or changing the way we market or getting into the pet food business, we've done a lot over the last few years to, to catch up with that change. And I think as we think about change, one of the keys is as you and, and uh, Bruce Atwater, who is a former CEO of General Mills, was, was, was doing a talk in 1982. And, you know, he said there's, a, there's always a tension between what you keep the same and what you change. And I think that's true of General Mills now more than ever. And for us, the thing that can't change is our values, which is one of the reasons I wanted to show that video. Because in a world that is so dynamic, whether it's economically dynamic or politically dynamic or food values changing or technology changing, I feel like you have to have something that tethers you to the tethers you to the ground. And for General Mills, that's always been our values. And it's one of the things I'm, I'm probably most proud of. And one recent an industry analyst said, uh, you, know, what you know, what generates, what, what's different about General Mills and other companies, you know, is the cost structure. I said, you know, for, you know with all due respect, you have no idea. It's not that at all. It's, it's the values that we have, and it's the culture that we put forth, and it's the people that we have at the company. That's what sets General Mills apart. And um, this youngster just didn't have it quite quite right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that speaks very much to, um, you know, how, how do you create and sustain that kind of corp corporate culture? How do you create a, a, a culture of, say, conscious inclusion in your company? How do you maintain that, uh, these values? And, you know, and to what extent is there, are these values somehow related to, uh, uh, you know, to, to us as a state? I mean, are you kind of in some ways, I mean, has the, has the evolution of these values, is, are they Minnesota values in any way, or is it, uh, what do you feel about that? Well, I mean, there are a number of questions to unpack there. I mean, I guess I would, I guess I would start by saying, for me, the, the values of the company are, you know, are unchanging and, we, and are unwavering. And so we talk about doing the right thing all the time. It's not, it's not doing the right thing when it's convenient for you. Mm -hmm. Is doing the right thing all the time. And we talk about we talk about winning as a team. It's not you know winning it as a team if you can't, but if you can't, just go on it by yourself. I mean, it's winning as a team, and business is a team sport. And you know, I think the values. I think they are Minnesota values. 
Um, I think they're, they're U.S. values, but I would tell you the values that General Mills has are the same across the world. And we've recently won awards in India and in China for our corporate values, and that probably makes me as proud as anything else. And so they are consistent around the world. In terms of how they evolve over time, it's interesting. that I think the values of the company remain the same, but the key with uh, culture, I think, just like, just like brands themselves, they're, they're not static. I mean, Cheers is not the same as it was 50 years ago, even though it's still a leading brand. And the, the same would be true of cultures. And so you have to update cultures for the time. Jeff and General Mills are embracing changing user patterns, but they're also valuing historic corporate culture. Now, can this work? I was really struck by his quote, you have to update cultures for the time. What would this process look like? How could big companies maintain their values, which have, well, brought them value, but still adapt to a changing and ever-accelerating market? Well, once again, there are clues somewhere you might not expect. Remote Southeast Asia. Okay, so I guess if you're looking at trends in Southeast Asia, um, okay, for a bit of background, I guess the the people, the, the countries in Southeast Asia, they are they are rapidly growing. They are, they are economies that are really newly emerging. Um, the middle the middle income group is uh, expanding really really fast. Um, in a lot of countries, like let's say the Philippines, um, most of the um the the expenditure is coming from one or two cities, uh, such as Manila. Uh, Indonesia, for example, it's mainly coming from the tier one cities, you know, like uh, Jakarta, um, you know, the expat uh, cities like Bali. Um, even in Vietnam, you know, you have main, mainly two um, cities, which are Hanoi and Ho Chi Minh. So it tends to be quite uh, region specific within each country. So that's a bit of an interesting mm. part because, you know, <clears throat> a tier one uh, city in a country would uh, would would be much uh, you know way more different than the situation in a tier three um, little town or uh, a smaller village. Sure. Yeah, and what consumers want will also be very different. And I guess on the back end or the supply side, distribution would also have to be really different. Um, I had a friend who you know she she was from Indonesia and she was saying that she didn't uh, before no prior to moving to Singapore from Indonesia in her in her hometown she didn't know there was such thing as like fresh milk everything was uh, UHT mm. because um, distribution was just impossible to get fresh milk um, from other countries or from the main city to where her small island is in Indonesia so only when she came to Singapore when she was already like a, an adult then she was exposed to fresh milk. And that is really like the situation that we, you know, is possible even now. Um, even when we talk about Southeast Asia expanding and, you know, people are becoming uh, more willing to spend, they're more educated, they're, you know, having access to internet, et cetera, et cetera. At the end of the day, you know, um, if they can't have access to these products physically, then, you know, the sales won't be there. And, you know, they can't really uh, relate to all these foods that are, coming up um so i think um uh one of the one of the key trends in meals in southeast asia would be how premiumization or how um health health uh, understanding of health is really varied um across uh, all the countries and within countries themselves um so you know probably the level of premiumization in southeast asia versus in the us or in europe would be totally different um yeah mm. the i mean the products that i've seen coming from um you know uh, western markets for example you know would really 
um, might not really take off here um, because some things are just too luxurious. You know, people would, would even though, even though they are like um, they might be uh, affordable, people might just think that you know it's totally unnecessary. They might prefer to spend on things that they're more familiar with, or the uh, or, mm-hmm. or products that um, you know speak to them uh, uh, more on a on a personal level. So even though they might try once or twice, you know they might not really uh, stick to it uh, for the longer term. So it's really important. I think it, it circles back to what we discussed earlier on, like comfort food and how uh, food really ties uh, into your local culture as well as uh, what you've been having at home. Um, and I think that is also one of the biggest challenges for meals, uh, meals categories that we have. Uh, you know, even though you know there's a lot of uh, talk on globalization, you know, uh, international brands are coming in, etc., etc. At the end of the day, um, a strong localized flavor or you know types of products and ingredients would really help um, products to um, uh, resonate with consumers. Fascinating. So, how do you balance the small local products, local producers, and alongside that? Um, kind of difficulty getting larger or fresher products uh, to smaller areas with the desire to grow quickly and uh, scale in larger cities? Um, I think actually, you know, it's the whole infrastructure that has to, you know, be be similarly, you know, have the same goal. So it doesn't just depend on, let's say, manufacturers or distributors, but, you know, it all also links to how technology is, you know, um, is efficient enough in that market, how logistics is uh, able to be um, a success. Um, and that also goes back to how, you know, what governments are doing, what, uh, you know, local, um, local organizations and agencies are doing, um, for the country itself. So it could be that con- companies are ready. Um, they might, they might have the technological uh, capabilities. Um, they might already have an idea of what consumers want locally in specific regions or cities. But, you know, if, if let's say, um, um, the road infrastructure is not there, you know, um, trucks can't pass or, you know, it's, it takes way too long for ships to go through, um, to, 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 to stop, to stop by, uh, certain islands, then it's really, you know, companies pretty much can't really do anything about that. So it's really down to smaller companies to kind of, um, bridge that uh, bridge consumers to certain foods. So in a lot of these emerging countries as well, you know, smaller players are really important and they play a big role in um, trying to deliver certain products and um, uh, types of food to consumers. So it's really interesting that, you know, some smaller companies are also trying to innovate, but um, a lot of times, uh, it doesn't quite match with um, consumers as well because sometimes, um, you know, they they might not be ready yet for very innovative products. So they might expect just basic mm. products from these small companies and, you know, um, they might also just um, uh, expect a certain price level uh, when they buy products from these smaller companies. So, you know, there's really no uh, attraction to buy uh, more expensive or uh, innovative products, whereas they might uh, be more willing to spend that cash outlay on uh, products coming from international companies because of that brand equity. So, um, 
mm. you know, there's there's so many factors at play. Uh, I think um, it 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 really has to uh, depend on different um, drivers and forces. So you know, if one if one uh, party is not ready, let's say you know infrastructure is not ready, companies just cannot go through. Um, if distribution is also not ready yet, you know um, the different uh, distribution players like wholesalers and so on and so forth, they also not ready. Then you know things just cannot proceed further. So um, I think everyone has a has a big role to play. Um, but I think on the consumer side, um, I think the demand is growing and is really there because uh, I think people are getting more um, sophisticated and aware of you know the latest products and trends more than um, that we might suspect, really because of the access to the internet. Um, although that um, mm-hmm. I know I know we, we mention you know internet all the time, but it's really quite true even in uh, smaller cities, even in emerging uh, countries, um, they might not be willing to spend on uh, higher higher priced food, but they might be more willing to spend on a mobile phone. And some of them might even have two mobile phones because one is for mm-hmm. their own business, one is for their personal use, and they'll rather spend money on that uh, internet or data card. Uh, compared to let's say a higher priced food because to them you know a cheap food is good enough for them so they might have access to you know what's going on in other parts of the market they might see oh this is the latest flavor but you know that the product is not really available or they might not think that it is worth um, spending money on it at the moment but their knowledge and awareness is there so it's really quite interesting to see how you know it it kind of all balances out or how uh, uh, manufacturers and uh, food professionals are trying to um, bridge that gap or, you know, fulfill that demand. That is so interesting. I had yeah. no idea. <laughs> wow. Hmm. So that's actually so perfect because, you know, a huge reason of why I started this podcast was I wanted to start a discussion about how companies of different sizes can, you know, collaborate to make a stronger food system overall. And it sounds like there's actually a huge opportunity to do that in Southeast Asia. Emil's friend didn't know there was such a thing as fresh milk. Can you imagine what an experience that must have been the first time she saw it? What I'm getting at here is that the new is necessary. What is vital to everyday life in these changing times? Is it different region to region? We'll look more into that question on the next episode. Today, we've learned that personalization is a requirement. And this is because the nature of people's relationship with food is changing. But that's not a bad thing. In fact, that's what gives us this great opportunity for change. We saw that even giants like General Mills are recognizing this and doing their best to create sustainable change while still maintaining their core values. This really is a bright spot of opportunity. And we have a lot to learn from how people in other areas of the world have adapted to similar changing perspectives. I can't wait to dig even deeper into this next time. See you then.